just to set the record clear, a lot of people have been asking uh, in the fellowship who I am. I have a new hairstyle. I've cut off 1 16th of an inch, which is a lot of the hair I used to have. But this is the new look, okay? So now we're square. <laughs> I wanted to bring you greetings, if you've not received them, from the places I've recently been, uh, in Jamaica, Tobago, and Trinidad, and then ask if I can give your greetings to the next couple places. Uh, uh, next Sunday, I'll be preparing for, on Monday, I'll be going to Central America. So I wanted to give your love to Mapasio and Managua and Nicaragua, and also to our sister church in San Jose, uh, Costa Rica, and also to Lagos, Nigeria, and Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. With your permission, can I pass on that love? Because I'm telling you, people love you. They love what you're doing. Also, speaking of East Africa, I, I have some good news. I thought the word would have spread so quickly because it was good news. It was about a month ago we heard that our brother in Somalia, who was going to be executed for giving up Islam, actually escaped. He escaped imprisonment. I don't know how he did it. I hope to get uh, more of the details when I'm in East Africa in three weeks time. Very encouraging. Because we're a global family, things that affect one part of the body affect all of us, for sure. Well, today, as you can see, the message is coming from the Old Testament book of Amos. Uh, a little book I published this year on that very subject. If you've read it, this is going to be repetitive, but it'll be good for you. And for everyone else, I hope you learn something about this very meaty book of prophecy in the Old Testament. There are many themes in Amos. One of those is the day of the Lord. Now, you can see that I've written it there. You might be thinking, well, the day of the Lord, that must be what's going to happen with what we call the second coming. And you would be correct, but only slightly correct, because there are many days of the Lord in the Old Testament and in the New. The two major days of the Lord in the Old Testament were when God punished the northern Israeli kingdom and that was the kingdom Amos was speaking to, and that happened in 722 B.C. And then the other major day of the Lord in the Old Testament was in 587 B.C., when God took the southern kingdom away in captivity, north by the Assyrians, the south by the Babylonians. In the New Testament, the best-known days of the Lord besides the second coming are 70 A.D., when the Romans destroyed the temple, and also the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.20, which is the day of the Lord. It's a day of judgment, a day of grace, a day of vindication, a day of many surprises. Well, that's a huge theme in Amos and in several other of the prophets. Religion without righteousness is worthless. This is a big theme. And even though it's a theme of Amos 2,700 years ago, it's needed today. Because sadly, most of my friends and colleagues who call themselves Christians have bought into this idea that as long as you go to church, as long as you go through the motions, everything's okay. But the Bible teaches in every book, it's not okay. God doesn't just want you to go through emotions, and Christianity is not a religion near as much as it is a relationship with God. We can't just go through emotions and think we're gonna squeak through on the day of the Lord. It won't work, it won't happen. No other prophet so scrutinizes and condemns the justice system, the favoritism, as what happens in Israel, or challenges so much worldliness in the church. In the Bible, 
Amos has influenced many other Old and New Testament books, and for us in Atlanta, was a major inspiration for the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, the book of Amos, particularly as we get to the most famous verse in Amos, which is our final verse today, in fact. What's going on at this time, in the mid-700s, it's a boom time. House prices are high. Life's good. International trade is going well. People are praising the Lord and thanking him, not only for their financial peace, but for his blessings, which clearly mean he must approve of what they're doing as his people. Because otherwise, why would God give them such a secure economic situation? Surely money is the mark of God's approval. Well, that was the way they reasoned at the time. Israel was doing very well. The borders, after shrinking, had expanded again to the size that they were at the time of King Solomon, 200 years before. The upper class, whom we read about frequently, uh, like in 2.8, and two passages we'll look at in a few minutes, the upper class was flourishing. They had a decadent, luxurious, entertainment-centered culture, which they enjoyed immensely. Unfortunately, it was only possible because of the working class, the people who basically made it, mm, made it feasible to begin with. One of Amos's favorite lines, uh, famous lines is, you, you sell the poor, uh, you sell the needy for a pair of sandals. And it's a critique of production lines, supply chains. Yes, we may get a great deal on that shirt, but it was produced in a sweat house in Bangladesh where people are paid sub-living wages. Maybe you want to think twice before we, before we buy that shirt. That's not the way I normally think, but I think that's justified in Amos. As you can tell from my ominous tone, this period, the 8th century BC, as Amos is warning Israel, is going to end up badly. The bubble is going to burst. It was unthinkable, it was inconceivable that that bubble could ever burst, but it does. And the book of Amos is almost all bad news. Almost all of it is warnings, oracles of judgment and doom, but there are one or two bright spots, particularly the last couple of verses of the very last chapter. But the rest of it is pretty heavy going until you get there. Why did it need to be that way? Excuse me. Okay. I was just giving a subtle signal. Everyone picked up on that. Okay, usually what the guys do is they put a bottle of water right here, but I reached for it. And, and like the poor people in Amos 8, 11, and 12, I was famished and, hang on. Can I take this? All right, I'll pretend I don't have this when he comes. So I don't want, I want him to feel validated. Okay. Oh, thank you, brother. Been waiting so long for that. All right, let's read our, our passage. Let's read it together right now. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. That day will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall 
only to have the snake bite him. <laughs> Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark, without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Let's pray before we explore this text. Lord, our greatest fear may be that like the people in Israel's day, we're going through so many emotions and that one day we might be shocked that the day of the Lord was not good news for us, but we are caught completely off guard. We don't want that to be the case. Help us to carefully, wisely listen to your word and not say that this message is out of date or no longer applies because it's in the Old Testament. Help us to be more biblically informed than that. Soften our hearts. Help us to learn what we need so that we may be prepared for the day of the Lord. Amen. He says, whoa. I mean, that's the first word. That's actually a really common word in the book of Amos. Whoa. Not good. Not good at all. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. You know, we sing, these people obviously were really looking forward to it. I think they were expecting that their enemies would be vanquished and that they would be rewarded more fully. Things would be even better. Just to be honest before I continue here, I sing that song, it's one of Tom Brown's favorites. Uh, Jesus is Lord. Do you know that song? Jesus is Lord. And at the end, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. Hallelujah. You've sung that, right? Many of you? Now, haven't you ever had a time where you're singing the words and you thought, I don't like those words or I don't even agree with them, which is when I just normally hum. If you see me humming, it's because I don't agree with the words. Now, it's not a matter of agreeing with, you don't agree with the word, Lord, come quickly, but it's one I don't really sing with all of my heart. So I don't want them to come quickly. There's a, a, an unusual Aramaic word, Maranatha, which appears at the end of, I think it's 1 Corinthians. Lord, come quickly. Maranatha. Mara is Lord. Marana is Lord. Lord, come quickly. And Paul could say that, and he expected his readers to get it. I don't pray that. If any of you ever prayed with me, you never hear me praying, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come before the year 2020. Because I think I like life here just a bit too much. I don't really want to die. 
I mean, I'm sure it would be an improvement, but things aren't that bad. I mean, I'm not living in Somalia. I'm not being imprisoned. And I know in the first century, so many Christians were in tough situations. There were rich people, but most people in society were not rich. They were very poor, hand to mouth. If you're living that way, then the promise of the kingdom of the Lord, the day of the Lord, sounds wonderful. But I think it's hard for us sometimes. If you're like me, you've been blinded. And so it's hard. Our theology needs an adjustment here. I don't know what to do with myself. I'll just admit it, though. So it's not like my attitude is all great. These people assumed that they were safe, but they were not safe at all. You're running away from the lion, and then you run into a bear. Now, this sounds like a cartoon, right? It doesn't sound like something that would happen, really. But in a cartoon, you're running away from the lion, there's the bear, and finally you get home, and you rest your hand on the wall, and the viper fastens its fangs into you. There's no way to get away from God's judgment. There's no way to flee from God. It will be too late to repent eventually. That day of the Lord is coming soon. There are many passages like this. Malachi 3, the beginning of Malachi 3, says that when the day, when the Lord actually does come, there's going to be judgment. And starting with the house of the Lord. Peter taught the same thing. John the Baptist taught the same thing. You don't have to take it from me. Just read the scripture and you'll see. One day it will be too late. Going through the motions is not enough. There's no way you can buy off God. What about the year 2016? A lot of confusion about the day of the Lord. A lot of confusion if you monitor the Christian radio stations. Some of the lessons are really good. But I would say the majority on the day of the Lord are to totally bogus. There are a number of misdirected ways of thinking we have. One is health and wealth. Health and wealth gospel, it says basically God's main plan, because he loves you as his child, his main ambition is to bless you financially and materially, and then you'll know you're okay. That is something we do have in common with Amos's generation. They were assuming that the wealthier you are, the more righteous you are. If you're poor, you deserved it. In Amos's day, Blessings were interpreted as God's approval. Even today, some people sing about mansions and streets of gold and pearly gates. It's kind of materialistic if you think about it. A second misdirected way of thinking is signs and wonders. The signs and wonders movement is huge in Africa, where I'll be in a few weeks, in Central America, where I'll be in eight days. It's huge in Asia. It's huge all over South America. It's getting stronger and stronger in the U.S. Basically turns Christianity into a show, a spectacle. And God's purpose is to do a miracle in your life. And God is a miracle-working God. God never stopped doing miracles. But signs and wonders is as confused and twisted as health and wealth. It's a false teaching. It's a false orientation. And Jesus in Matthew 7, 22... He has just said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, on the day of the Lord. 
is going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. And the very next verse, he's correcting those who assume they're okay because they had prophetic experience or they had done an exorcism. Maybe they had a friend who spoke in languages miraculously. And Jesus ultimately says, I never knew you. The miracles don't count. They don't prove anything. In the scripture, the miracles prove something, but virtually never do they prove that the one doing the wonder is himself a Christian or a man of God. It doesn't work that way. Health and wealth, signs and wonders. Cheap grace. Because the day of the Lord for the disobedient will be bad news. As Christians, I think we, along with Protestants, have kind of a funny notion about sin, about forgiveness of sin. Even though the New Testament says that the gospel is Jesus' death and his resurrection, it, they're both there. Like 1 Corinthians 15, 1, 2, 3, and 4. Lots of other passages. We say, well, his death is the main thing because that's how we're forgiven of our sin. But the point wasn't to simply be forgiven of sin. The point was to be cleansed of sin. And the resurrection is what enables us to be cleansed of sin. Romans 6, 4, other passages. The resurrection is what enables us to be born again. It's what enables us to walk in the light as he is in the light and be continually cleansed in an ongoing way. I don't want to just be forgiven of my sin, though I do. Promise you I do. I don't want to just be living a worldly life and be forgiven of my sin. Actually, that's an impossibility biblically. I want to be clean. I want to be forgiven but I don't want to keep doing the things I need to be forgiven of. I want to be walking on that narrow road. That's not possible without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we, we focus so much on the death side, not enough on the resurrection side. And I think if you explore the New Testament, even read what Christians wrote in the next few hundred years, they emphasize resurrection at least as much as they emphasize death. Okay. No cheap grace, no license for immorality. And the fourth and final misdirected way of thinking, well, I don't really know what to call it. I just called it end times zeal. But really, if you did want the Lord to come quickly and you did say Maranatha sincerely, then that would be end times zeal and that would actually be good. But I mean this phrase in not a good way. I'm talking about the person who's fascinated by all the predictions looking for prophecies to be fulfilled today. The person who was taken in by the Left Behind series. She imagines that from the comfort of her cloud, she'll watch her neighbors writhing in agony as the third and fourth bowl of judgment are, are poured out from in heaven. I'm talking about people who bought into rapture and tribulation. Yes, there is a rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. If we're still alive, we're taken up to meet the Lord. But tribulation in the Bible is what happens to Christians, not to non-Christians. And there's not a rapture and then a tribulation. It's all, this, it's all one event. There's no tribulation. God's punishing the world and we're going to be viewing it. That's not a biblical concept. 
that comes from cherry-picking certain verses in Revelation. End time zeal, rapture and tribulation. And for those men who are so focused on this, and I know people who, they seem to have a great love for the Bible, but they don't know any verses other than prophecies and, and portions of Revelation. If you're such an expert, if you have such great end times insight, what are you doing to help others to be ready for the end? To help your neighbor to be prepared because that would show true insight. That would show that it's not just some religious game, but you really have taken seriously the gospel message. In fact, the message of the entire Bible. Will not that day be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness because they're not ready. He can't stand their religious actions. Verse 21 is like Revelation 3.16. God is sickened. Verse 22, sacrifice without obedience is meaningless ritual. Most churches teach simply, sin all you like, sin all week long. Go to church on Saturday or Sunday, get forgiven, and then go resume your life of sin. A twisted understanding of the crucifixion and virtually zero understanding of the resurrection. This is not how we're to live. Sacrifice without obedience is meaningless. Hosea 6, Micah 6, Jeremiah 7, Mark 7, so many other chapters. Atlanta is a very religious city, isn't it? I had lunch with a friend of mine, pastor friend, preacher, preacher friend. Their, their church makes us look very tiny here because they have 17,000. It was interesting because I was talking to him on a Thursday morning and he was telling me that he had, he had taught, he had given the lesson at the midweek service. I was just kind of curious, you got a lot of people, how many people show up for midweek? He said, 150. He said, oh, but, but it's not, it's more than you would think. The group I taught was 150, but we actually have two groups. Okay, good, then it's 250 or 300. And I'm wondering, what are the other 16,700 people doing on Wednesday night? I can guess, but for many of them I doubt it has anything to do with God. But why should they be involved at midweek? They'll come on Sunday, they'll take the communion, the sins will be forgiven, and it's fine. Who cares about being cleansed when you can just be forgiven? Well, you should care. Because the scriptures speak of a day when the door closes and it's too late. We see this in Matthew and Luke, like Luke 13, Matthew 7 that I referred to, and Matthew 25. A situation where the door is closed, and we might be on the outside knocking and pleading, open for us. And the reply is not, yes, come in, my bad. No. The Lord says, I never knew you. You're lawless. You've not obeyed my law. You've been a law unto yourself, and I'm sorry those 9,000 church services you went to don't even count. It's not determined that way, it's based on your heart. You thought you could buy me off and you were wrong. Therefore, away with the noise of your songs, verse 23. Verse 24, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. 
the most famous verse in Amos, one of the most famous in the Bible. In Israel, about a dozen of us will be going there in a few months' time, two months' time. Look forward to that a lot. But you'll see there are lots of wadis. W-A-D-I. A wadi is a stream, but it's only a stream when there's been rain. And since there's a wet season and a dry season most of the year, you can't count on any water being in the wadi. It's only if there's an un unexpected rain shower or during the wet season, especially December, January, around that time. Our religion is not meant to be just seasonal, occasional, on and off, stop and go, intermittent like a wadi. The Lord's looking for an ever-flowing and never-failing stream. Will it be perfect every day? No, it won't. And that's why the Lord died for us. Amen. Let's count on that grace. But our lifestyle needs to have a flow to it. There's a consistency. This is a beautiful passage. God's people are righteous all the time. We can be overconfident about our preparation. I have so many things to share here. I don't want to, to run over the time I'm given. But I've had a lot of discussions recently with people who've asked, are we really doing it? Are we really living like God's people? How come our conferences now, they used to always have the word evangelism in them. Now evangelism is just a class you might attend at a conference. Are we really doing it right now? Have we slipped? Are we going to evangelize the world? Is it possible? With less than 2% growth in our brotherhood worldwide last year, and that was one of our better years for quite a while. 1.7%. Do I think that we're going to evangelize the world with that kind of growth? No. And it's not even a matter of faith. That's just a simple matter of mathematics. In most places, there's just nothing going on. And it should be heart-shattering, heartbreaking. Why not? Is it because we're so busy with the things of the world? Is it because we bought into the Cobb County dream? What are we doing, and especially for us who are older Christians? For someone like me, it's not that I don't want to help people become Christians. I want to be involved as much as I can. But as a young Christian, I was a different person. I would take a chance. I would pray and hope and, and act in such a way that maybe this stranger I'm about to introduce myself to, maybe th that person will become a Christian. And I tried to get as many as I could and follow up as much as I could and fill my life with the mission. And now, in some ways, it's the absolute opposite. I'm like Jonah. I'm afraid if I do share, the person's going to be open. And what a burden. Then I've got to follow up. And I'll be, you know, spending my evenings in evangelism and... That doesn't sound like a very good thing for a preacher to share. I remind you, I don't work for the church, so I'm off the hook, right? No, I'm not off the hook because there's no clergy laity. Everyone's in the ministry. Everyone's in the ministry. But maybe just because I'm older, I'm not as strong physically. Or I'm not as uh, free. Life is more complex. But evangelism should never be something that makes us feel burdened. Like, wow, that, what an inconvenience. Someone else should do it. No. Anyway, these are the kinds of thoughts I have here. Who needs to repent today? I'm looking in the audience and I see 
two broad groups of people who need to repent. The first are the women. And first, not because their sin is greater than that of the men, but because they're in chapter 4. The men's chapter is chapter 6. Look what he says. What a passage. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. Cows. Now, Bashan was a region that raised extra fat cattle. On the other side of the Jordan. And it's talking about, you know how cows are. Cows never really get that excited about anything, do they? They're kind of lethargic. They move slowly, don't they? They move slowly. The fat cows of Bashan. What else does he say? You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. He's talking to the upper class women. What? Would they go out and oppress the needy? Not directly. But their lifestyle is, depends on the oppression of the needy. Their rich lifestyle would not be possible if there weren't thousands and millions of others doing the grunt work and being paid a pittance for them. Look what they say to their husbands. Bring us some drinks. They're on the sofa. There's the television. Bring us a drink, won't you, honey? Make it a double. Bring us some drinks. The Sovereign Lord has sworn by His Holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last day with fish hooks. Because you see, when the Assyrian army came, they put hooks. This is not a body piercing you want. They put the hook through the nose, sometimes through the ear, and they put you on a chain like a string of fish. If, you're, if you like fishing like I do, you know what I mean? You've got eight or nine fish on there. The women will be let out through the breaks in the city wall, prodded like the corpulent cattle that they are. They've been disciplined, verses 6 to 11, but they've not responded. Therefore, he says in verse 12, prepare to meet your God. And now the men. Prophet now shifts the attack to the rich and powerful men. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. To you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Verse 3, you put off the day of disaster, bring near a reign of terror. Verse 4, look at this. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. Fine couches, leather couches, beds with the best Tempur-Pedic mattress and all possible remotes so you can be in just the right position. You see, it's all about lounging. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. This is a time when the average person gets meat very rarely. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? You know, kill the fatted calf? That means we're gonna have meat tonight. That's a special occasion event, which for the rich people was a daily, a daily enjoyment. You strum on your harps like David. You improvise on musical instruments. See, they're, they're, they got the entertainment culture there. And you drink wine by the bowlful. You ever had a glass of wine? 
Did you ever drink wine out of a bowl? No, waiter, leave the bottle. Actually, waiter, just fill up a bucket. There's something obscene about this. What's really going on? You use the finest lotions. This is body care. This, these, is, these are things that give you such nice skin, you're bound to live at least 50 years longer than your friends. And look at verse 6. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you'll be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. When times are good financially, it's easy to kick back, to be complacent. But lives of luxury are reprehensible with so many needs and others are going unmet. We know from archaeology that Amos was not being too hard on the people. Harvard University had an expedition and they dug down. This was in Samaria. And they found the records of deliveries of fine oil, special wine. In nearby Megiddo, there's an ivory carving. It's a noble who's drinking from a bowl while her servant is playing a stringed instrument. It's a lute. So they've got, it's not just a sound system, they've got the musician in their home and she's drinking out of a bowl. This is exactly how they lived. They cared for themselves. They cared for the perks that come with power. Their creative energies went into the arts. Let's give them a hand. Did not go into the poor. They weren't concerned about the things that God was concerned about. As a result, exile was certain. There's no way they're going to get out of this. We can't plead ignorance. Let's not get angry. The three classic responses are you get angry at the messenger because you don't like the message, or you just tune out completely, or you get depressed. You take it so hard that you guarantee you won't change. No. We need to accept the message and change and don't plead ignorance. Ignorance leads to some funny places. I was typing an email on Friday. I was signing off, gratefully yours. What I actually typed by accident was hatefully yours. <laughs> A couple months ago, I was frustrated by my autocorrect. I was texting and I was ending with the word okay, the word okay, but you know how O and P are next to each other? And it guessed the word I was typing. It typed the word playboy, which is not what I was typing at all. But you send it, you better own it. You can't just plead ignorance because then you condemn yourself as a sloppy thinker. You don't do any proofreading. Woe to us. Woe to you, women and men who long for the day of the Lord. What a passage. A day of darkness, not light. You're not ready for it. Going through the motions does not let us off the hook. Your assemblies are a stench for me. Well, what should we do? Ask this question. Am I living for luxury, status, pleasure, conspicuous consumption? 
Do my expenses reflect my spiritual convictions about money? Of course they do. They, your expenses reflect it perfectly. That's the whole point. Read the Bible and find out what God wants us to do. Let's find out whether we might be oppressing the poor even indirectly and unknowingly. Don't get caught up in end time speculations. It's not worth spending any time there. And it's strongly discouraged by Jesus and Paul. So change the channel when that comes on the radio. Am I someone who could be described as complacent in Zion? Does my own evangelism reflect true conviction about the lost? Because that's what righteousness is. It's not righteous to be saved and not want to help others to be saved. That's, that's like the greatest unrighteousness. This isn't just helping someone who's shivering in the cold. You could have just given them a blanket. This is someone whose entire existence is in jeopardy and we talk ourselves out of it. And what are we doing? What are we doing instead of doing what we should be doing? Do I grieve over the ruin of Joseph? Over the pain and the alienation, the lostness and condemnation of the world? Am I grieving over the fractured state of so many churches, denominations who claim to know God? So divided. Do I grieve when my own local church isn't growing spiritually and numerically? Respond to this message. No knee-jerk knee responses. You say, well, I feel really convicted, Douglas, about this message. So to make my conscience feel better, I'm going to give a triple offering next week. I'm going to cancel my spouse's birthday, and instead of giving her a present, I'm just going to spend time in the streets. Don't do something just to make yourself feel better. Look at what the scriptures say. Rushing is not healthy, like those emails I was talking about. I was rushing too much and I saw the tube of toothpaste and here was my toothbrush and I needed to brush my teeth and get going but I really should have read the toothpaste first because normally I don't put hemorrhoid cream on my toothbrush. I want you to respond to this message in a careful way, a considered way. Take some time, think it over, because if we're not living in line with truly Christian convictions, resisting materialism, caring for the lost and the needy, then we're not ready to meet the Lord even if we were baptized biblically. You think, well, that's my trump card, that's my wild card. I was baptized better than anyone else because I understood all the implications. And you think that's going to somehow make up for not living a holy life? You've got to be nuts. You've got to be someone who never read the Gospels, never read Amos. It's all there. Don't be charmed by the ways of the world. Wow, what a beautiful car. I wish I had that. Woo, look at that thing. The Bible calls that lust. Lust is not sexual. It can be. It's just as likely to be materialism. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. What fine clothes. Wow, look at that jewelry. What nice shoes. That's lust. We're charmed by the world, or God has our heart. Which is it? Where do you stand? And I wanted to close with an anthology, just a, a collection of some very powerful and convicting passages from Amos, and then I will give up the stage, which I've held too long anyway. But please listen. The words of the Lord. 
You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. Away with the noise of your songs, but let justice roll like a river, righteousness like an ever-failing stream. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. The lion has roared, who will not fear. The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy and prepare to meet your God? 